Welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host and collectives editor at Interactive Investor. As usual, in the podcast, we have a fund manager interview coming up and also at the end, our fund spotlight feature. For the fund manager interview, I chatted to Anthony Cross of the Lion Trust Special Situations Fund. But firstly, I'm joined by Tom Bailey, who regular listeners to the podcast will know is the ETF editor at Interactive Investor. And me and Tom are going to chat through a couple of fund and investment trust news items. Tom, let's start off with the latest figures from the Investment Association, which shows where investors put their money in March. One of the key takeaways is that equity funds remain firmly in favour with investors. In March, $1.1 billion was invested in equity funds compared to $296 million a month earlier. And this marks the sixth consecutive month of inflows for equity funds, which means that more money was invested than was withdrawn. But it was interesting to see in the data that there are only two regions that accounted for all the inflows for equity funds. Yeah, it was uh, Global and UK that saw all the inflows. Um, so Global Funds took in the most inflows by far. Uh, and this is kind of just a continuation of the trend we've seen for the past few years. So over, I think, nearly three years now, um, it's been the best-selling sector among retail investors in the UK. However, the other sector to the inflows, as I said, was the was UK funds. And this is interesting because global fund inflows for the last few years had, come in, had been coming largely at the expense of UK funds. So uh, UK investors had like, been reducing exposure to UK stocks um, and seeking global diversification. And that was kind of reflecting the data. But now, obviously, they're the two areas that's both in inflows together, um, albeit small for UK funds, but it's still it marks a, a turn from the past, the trend for the past few years. Um, it kind of suggests that UK investors are becoming more warm to investing in UK stocks again post-Brexit, post the successful vaccine rollout, etc. Of the other regions, North America funds saw $1 billion withdrawn. Europe funds lost $421 million. And Asia and Japan funds posted respective outflows of 99 million and 86 million. The lack of investor appetite for European funds comes at a time when some European markets have just hit record highs. Yeah, so it's quite strange uh, on the surface, at least, because you know this, Europe's seen very poor vaccine uh, rollout performance. So far, it seems to be getting better now. Um, but this has obviously hurt European economic growth in the first quarter of the year. Um, but despite this, European stock markets have done relatively well. So the stocks Europe 600 is a pan-European index. Um, it's hit several new all-time highs this year, uh, while the DAX, Germany's uh, main headline index, um, hit a new all-time high on, on the 18th of May. So it's kind of, it seems like there's a bit of a disconnect there. But it's really because of two things. So one is the international nature of European stock markets, uh, particularly Germany, but all, all, most European major indices, um, they, they're set abroad, uh, and then also the highly value and cyclical nature of European stocks. So what this means is that even though Europe's economy may have uh, fared worse at the start of the year, its equities have been able to benefit from the from the more broad global uplift uh, in economic growth and expectations from US, UK, China, etc. But still, this strong performance of European indices hasn't really fed into investor and site. Uh, investor excitement for European funds, as we can see in this latest fund data. I don't know what what, what the cause is necessarily. I, I would put it down to perhaps UK investors still having quite a negative perception of the continent after the past decade or so of underperformance. 
The fact that European funds are very rarely flavor of the month with retail investors, in my view, could potentially have something to do with, rightly or wrongly, Europe just not being viewed as an exciting place to invest. I get the sense that Europe is just not viewed as being at the cutting edge of technology. It has some great companies. And as you mentioned, Tom, a lot of the larger companies are global businesses that make more of their money outside of Europe. And of course, there are some really good European funds out there as well. But I do think it's a much harder sell for Europe funds compared to a global fund or a US fund, particularly when they've got exposure to technology companies that are listed in the US. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, it's definitely uh, much less exciting for, for, from, from an investor's perspective. But in many ways, that's kind of what has uh, has made the European industries perform so well lately, is that it is full of relatively boring cyclical and value stocks. Um, they're not they're not exciting, not that interesting to investors, but that's what the markets have favoured the last six months or so. Moving back to the UK, while UK equity funds were in demand overall, in terms of sectors, the Investment Association's UK equity income sector continues to be out of favour with investors. Just under 600 million was withdrawn from the sector in March, which marked the 10th consecutive month of outflows. In the investment trust space, UK equity income investment trusts seem to have some investor interest, given that the vast majority of trusts in that sector are trading on either small discounts or small premiums. So in other words, there are now a lack of bargains. The average discount figure for the sector is currently 3% compared to 9% at the start of November. The start of November, of course, was prior to the vaccine breakthroughs that were announced, which proved to be the uh, catalyst for a strong six-month showing in terms of performance for UK funds and trusts. From a yield perspective, there are plenty of options for income investors. Tom, you covered a piece of research from the investment analyst Stifle, which found there are 25 equity trusts yielding above 4%. Yeah, so a couple of these were the kind of uh, UK equity income stalwarts you kind of you always expect to see in this kind of list, City of London, Merchants. But it's interesting too, on the list were um, investment trusts from, from around the world in, in less uh, income-focused markets, so notably Asia. So um, you had Henderson Fire East Income, obviously it's got income in its title, but that was on the highest yield at 7.2%. Uh, also in there was Aberdeen Asian Income. The second highest yielding trust, though, was European Assets on a yield of just over 6%. But you, you can find the whole list at ii.co.uk. And of course, there's plenty of other articles and educational material on ii.co.uk regarding investment trusts, as well as written articles. We recently published a video that explains the structural differences of investment trusts compared to funds, including an, an explanation of the dividend reserves. Please check that out on our Interactive Investor YouTube channel. Our Fund Manager guest for this episode is Anthony Cross, Fund Manager of the Lion Trust Special Situations Fund, which is one of Interactive Investor's Super 60 funds. So Anthony, there are three key qualities that you look for in a business. Could you firstly run through those for us? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the first starting point for us with any investment 
is the hunt for intangible assets or intellectual capital. And there's three in particular that we look for before investing in a company. And any company we own must have at least one of them. Uh, these are intellectual property, so patents, copyrights, trade secrets, and know-how, or distribution networks. And there's two types of networks that we like, either the big-scale networks that you find with global companies like Unilever or Diageo, huge global networks with lots of sunk marketing cost, deep customer relationships, deep supplier relationships. So those big networks we think are very valuable. And the other type of distribution network we like are the much more modern data-driven networks that you find with software companies or market research companies or general media businesses where they've created critical data through software or through analysis that forms very much an important part of their end client's methods of doing business. So these software kind of companies are very much embedded within their end customers. And we think that's very, very powerful, very, very sticky difficult for competitors to come and remove them. And the final thing we like trying to find in companies is high recurring income. And by this, we mean at least 70% of your turnover is recurring through a sort of subscription style contract. So it might be software companies or fee-based financials. So the reason why we're so interested in intellectual capital is that we think it provides companies with very strong barriers to competition, pricing power, and the ability to compound out growth over a long period of time. So those are our big three, IP or distribution or recurring income, and any of our companies must have at least one of them. The start of 2020 has been a, a very eventful period to be a fund manager. What's your assessments of performance during those heavy market falls last February and last March and the subsequent recovery that has taken place since? Yes, no, it certainly was a very difficult time, a difficult time for everyone. What we found in the first part of the, the market fall was that we actually uh, fell obviously sharply, but we outperformed quite nicely versus the all share and our competitor peer group. The market bottomed on March the 23rd, but in that sharp fall up to that time, uh, we benefited a lot from not being in areas like retail banking, uh, being underweight big oil at that point, and also being underweight in those sort of companies that would be typically impacted by the pandemic. So we don't own anything in retailing. Uh, we don't own uh, the typical pubs or restaurant businesses, uh, typical leisure businesses, and those businesses that were sadly affected a lot by the outbreak of the pandemic. It's not that we didn't have anything that was hit hard. We had things like Compass Group in contract catering. Uh, we own shares in Diageo. But overall, we were positioned away from those areas that seemed to be damaged the most in that first part of the pandemic. The market then, as I said, bottomed on March the 23rd. And for the next period, up until November the 9th, again, we outperformed the all share and we kept in line with our, with our peer group. And what was happening here for us is that our industrial companies that had fallen quite sharply in the first part of the pandemic did bounce nicely. Uh, we also had some very nice performance from a number of our AIM companies, the alternative investment market companies, companies such as Gamma Communications and YouGov. And also we did continue to benefit from being underweight banks during this period. So that was the second period. And then the market on March the 9th, Monday, March the 9th, in the afternoon, the market went up quite strongly 
and continue to be fairly strong for the rest of the year because of the Pfizer vaccine news. Now, in this period, we underperformed the market because a lot of those stocks that got hit in the first period, the COVID-related stocks, they did bounce very strongly. And areas like banking, retail banks bounced, um, and also areas like the mining companies. So in that final part of the year, we, we were up quite strongly, but we underperformed the market and our peer group. For the year as a whole, though, we did outperform the all share uh, pretty strongly. We were down 1.2% for the year. The all share was down over 9%. And we also outperformed our peer group as well. So for the year as a whole, stressful time for everyone. Uh, but by the end of the year, we had come through relatively pretty strongly. The past six months in particular has been a, a strong period for UK funds. The Lionshaw um, Special Situations Fund is slightly behind the Investment Association's UK oil company sector average over that time period. I think you just alluded to this in your previous answer, but has this mainly been down to that market rotation towards cyclical companies? Yes, no, it really has been. And, you know, the last six months has seen that vaccine-related cyclical recovery. And moving into this year, so 2021, there has been a degree of continued move into sort of value areas of the market. So it can be, you know, it can move around really at the moment from day to day, week to week. But the overall flavour has been for a bit more move into some of these value companies. What's absolutely critical for us, though, is, is our, are our companies delivering in the way that we hope they would do? Are they continuing to meet expectations or even beat profit expectations? And in the vast majority of cases, the answer is absolutely yes. So that's the big test for us. Are these intellectual capital rich businesses with high returns on invested capital, are they coming through in terms of being able to meet market expectations and I'm really pleased to say yes they are. I wanted to next move on to inflation. A prospect of higher inflation in the years to come is becoming an increasing concern and indeed we have figures out today that showed that um, UK inflation more than doubled month on month to 1.5% in April. Could you name some companies that you hold that look well placed to potentially seek sanctuary from inflation? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That, I mean, inflation definitely feels like it's it's coming through. What we really set out at the very outset of our investment process, as we described at the beginning, is this real focus on intellectual capital, which provides barriers to competition and pricing power. And that's where we think our businesses should have an advantage versus your average business in the stock market. So, you know, good examples would be companies that have got strong intellectual property, uh, engineering businesses, for example, you know, the companies like Spirex Sarco or Spectrus or Renishaw that we have in the fund. Uh, and I was looking at Renishaw the other day in terms of what the management uh, was saying about uh, the importance of intellectual property. And not really in, in relation to this current inflation, but they were saying that intellectual property is, you know, really does protect you from inflation because if people want to buy your patented product, they can't go anywhere else. Therefore, that does give you some strong pricing power. So engineers should be good for, for having that pricing power. Uh, and other areas are, say, some of the branded companies uh, with, with uh, branded drinks, for example, in Diageo, 
you know, they are able to move their prices up. Companies like Unilever have you know, decades of experience of being able to adjust prices in line with inflation. We've seen other companies reporting to, you know, more recently, companies like Compass Group, you know, quite a lot of their, their contracts are protected for inflation indexed. And a company that's updated the market uh, today, Coates Group, has talked about being able to adjust pricing. So absolutely, you know, inflation is going to be a big issue for the market. But when we're looking at our intellectual capital business models, uh, we are hopeful that many of our companies will, will demonstrate that resilient pricing power. And finally, with assets of around $6 billion, the funds cannot invest in smaller companies to the extent that it is in the past. What is the cutoff in terms of market capitalization? And also, will it be a tipping point in the future in which the fund becomes too big? So, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, over the years, um, the type of small company that we invest in has gradually changed with the fund. Clearly, when I started the fund back in 2005, a small company could be, in fact, what we would describe today as a microcap company, could be bought for the fund. Now the fund is much bigger. Your typical smaller company that we're investing in for the first time will be kind of 400 million market cap upwards. That would allow, uh, allow us to get a unit position of sort of a half a percent or a percent, depending on the size of the company. And then hopefully it could then compound from then on. So yes, definitely the, the type of small cap uh, market cap wise has changed, but the dynamic dynamics of the smaller companies haven't changed that much. I mean, we're, we're still investing in some really nice uh, software businesses, some really nice fee-based financial service companies. Um, you know, lots of really nice companies are on the radar that can come into special situations. The other thing that's happened is that the smaller companies that we have, because typically they'll have lower uh, position sizes than they might have done five or 10 years ago, there is more of a portfolio effect of the small companies sitting in special situations. So with special situations, we aim to have between 20 and 30% in small companies and AIM companies. And as I say, there's more of a portfolio effect of those companies now. There's a greater number of those businesses in the fund than they used to be. Um, in terms of you know the size of the fund, uh, it feels very manageable at the moment. Um, we're, we are able to invest quite happily in our small companies. We currently have 25% of the fund in small cap and aim. So we could gradually take more money into the fund. Uh, the fund has continued to perform well you know, with its current size. We had a very you know, good relative year last year. Uh, but clearly there is a, a probably a finite level, but we don't really know what that is for the fund. And as long as I take the kind of the view that as long as we're continuing to perform for investors, investors will be happy with us. If at some stage you know, performance is different, well, then investors might take a different view. But at the moment, it feels very comfortable. And we also feel that the style works very strongly right across the market. So yes, small companies are important to us, but we've got some fantastic uh, mid to 50 companies and FTSE 100 companies. So at the moment, it feels it feels fine. As usual, the final part of the podcast is our fund spotlight feature. For this episode, it is Theodore's turn. 
Theodore is a fund analyst at Interactive Investor. So firstly, which fund have you chosen from Interactive Investor's Super 60 list and how does it invest? For this episode, I picked up the Crooks European Special Situation Fund. The fund is run by the experienced investors Richard Peace and James Milne, uh, who aim to back around 60 of the best stock ideas and consider four key criteria in their stock selection. Um, so first, they look for companies with identifiable business strategies uh, that have high barriers to entry and strong pricing power, which actually enables them to generate robust earnings with growth potential. The managers also seek sound businesses that are not highly capital intensive and where return on capital employed exceeds the cost of capital. They also assess quality management and select businesses whose managements have proven track record and meaningful equity ownership in the companies they manage. Last but not least, companies need to trade on attractive valuations. So where is the fund currently investing? Could you run through a couple of stock examples and sectors that it's favoring? Currently, the fund has a concentrated portfolio of 46 companies and has large exposure to economically sensitive areas of the market, such as industrials, communication services, and technology. In terms of market cap and style exposure, the strategy has more than half of its portfolio allocated to large cap companies, uh, but also has relatively large exposure to mid and small caps as well. The fund also shows more core and growth features and is underweight in value assets. Among the top 10 holdings, investors could recognize the French multinational energy provider Schneider Electric, Gelstrom Bank, Bavac, and the Swiss pharmaceutical giant Novartis. So Theodore, why do you think that this fund stands out from the crowd? I think this fund has a few unique selling points, but it's worth highlighting the well-defined and proven investment approach. Since its launch in 2009, the fund has comfortably outperformed its investment association Europe excluding the UK benchmark, and delivered a total return of 227% compared to 160% for the sector. In addition, the managers of the strategy can offer a wealth of quality experience gained over a full market cycle. Finally, investors should bear in mind that this is a high-risk strategy and is more suitable to be used as a diversifier rather than a core holding. That's all for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please like and subscribe. And of course, you can find lots more investment insights and ideas at ii.co.uk. We will be back in early June.